Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Real quick announcement I wanted to make before today's episode. We are super excited because we just released six new financial modeling training courses on Wall Street Oasis. You can check it out on the homepage, wallstreetoasis.com or wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Um, we're super excited because it includes Excel modeling, valuation modeling, DCF, LBO, M&A, financial statement modeling, basically anything you will need to master financial modeling and hit the ground running day one. Definitely don't wait to check it out because there is an early access discount going on right now. And that's it. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Avi shares his unusual path from investment banking to running a magazine startup and then back into investment banking two years later. After that re-entry into finance, Avi was able to lateral into an IR role at a private equity fund and eventually became COO of Riverside's European Fund seven years later. Finally, he made the bold, and I'd argue crazy, move to pursue a PhD while working and eventually found himself at Landmark, a private equity fund focused on the secondary market. Super interesting path. Enjoy. Thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So it'd be great if you could give the listeners just a short summary of your bio to get started. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'm a managing director in the quantitative research group at a firm called Landmark Partners. Uh, Landmark is one of the largest uh, private equity, private real estate, and infrastructure secondaries firms. Uh, for people, maybe I'll say just a couple words about secondaries. Sure. Uh, couple words about quantitative research, people who might not be familiar with that. Uh, secondaries is it's about an $80 billion part of the private equity, private real estate, and private infrastructure business. Uh, traditionally, firms like Landmark buy diversified portfolios of LP interests and funds from large investors. Uh, more recently, there have been more, um, in recent years, trending more towards more complicated uh, transactions. That's a bit on secondaries. So we can talk more about that um, as you like. And quantitative research is applying uh, some of the same types of quantitative tools that you might find in more sophisticated public markets uh, over to private markets. That's that's pretty uh, new. Um, and pretty new landmark, it dates back to about 2009. Um, and then about, about me, um, just a little bit uh, on me, uh, I started off my career um, back in the late 90s at, at Lehman Brothers. Um, I was an analyst at Lehman Brothers uh, doing mostly tech investment banking. Uh, from there, decided to go for my MBA. I went to INSEAD in France. 
and then from there, I ran a magazine for a couple of years, uh, then came back into investment banking, then over to uh, private equity uh, at a firm called the Riverside Company, where I was for about 10 years, uh, then decided to do, for a P- to do my PhD, uh, and then came into quant research. So there's, there's a lot there, and I'm happy to go in any I love direction it. No, that you want. This is perfect because it's super fascinating how you've touched on a lot of different things, uh, different interests that I think that our listeners will have. So let's just real quick, let's start all the way back actually at undergrad. Um, and was business and finance always on the radar? I mean, it sounds like you've, you've been in banking, private equity, you know, you've been around that. So was that always something you wanted to do? Yeah, it, it was. Um, I was, uh, I don't know how, how common or rare this is, but I'm someone who I, I had probably always wanted to do something like this. And from the time I was in, in college, starting out in university, I knew that I wanted to do. Was uh, family, were you, was your family involved in it? What was that? Why? Why do you think that was? You know, that's funny. No, um, I, I, I don't know. My, uh, my family's all in, in, in medicine. Um, Mine too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess maybe there's some kind of trend that people who have families that are in medicine come over and do this. Um, no, as far as I know, I'm the first person in my family, um, in, in my, you know, my parents, grandparents, as far as I know, I'm the first person who's ever done something like this. Um, but I've, I've always been interested in economics. I've always been interested in the world of finance. It's, mm-hmm. um, right, it's such an important part of life, and there's mm-hmm. so much interesting that happens in it. Um, and, and it's it's so important economically. I've, I've always been interested in that. You came out at an interesting time. It was kind of like the, the dot-com boom and everyone was excited in 98 for somebody to go into finance like why wouldn't you go to a startup then you know <laughs> i feel people you know, a lot of our listeners were like just getting or just being born then but or not even born yet but in terms of just history it was like a very exciting time um uh, in terms of silicon valley and um kind of similar to now actually where there's um so much hype and really high valuations back then it was all about eyeballs right if you just had some eyeballs people were giving you skyrocketing valuations but anyways tell me why tell me about your your transition out of undergrad into lehman and kind of what were you did you start out as an analyst because it says associate on there i know you're there for three and a half years or did they promote you yeah so i well i i think there's a story there that relates probably a bit to to dot com as well um so yeah so i started out as an analyst um i actually did my undergrad in uh in israel okay um i, I went to university there um after that uh came to to lehman um they ended up sending me uh, from new york to the tel aviv office okay. um if my numbers are right i think the tel aviv office might have been like 10% of Lehman's IPOs or something like that, because it was, it was very tech heavy, wow. right? Like back then there, yeah. there was a lot of, maybe, like, I don't, I don't, maybe it's wrong, but there was a lot, there, there were a lot of IPOs in Tel Aviv, right? Israel was a, was a meaningful part of it at that time. Um, and it's still and, a huge part of the startup culture nowadays. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and as I recall, um, I, there were, I think a bunch of us who were just promoted, um, after two years being the analyst program, we were promoted to associate. Um, I, I don't know how common that is now. I don't think that was very common then, but I think just the market, right? It's, it, happening, more. Had- it's happening more now, but I guess you, they were so busy, you're getting paid so well, doing so many IPOs. It's like, why not stay on, right? Was that the thought process? Well, and and I think a lot of people had offers from tech companies. A lot of people had offers from venture capitalists, right? Because that was a great place to, to be. So I, I'm saying this from, from, from memory now. I, I can't verify this, but I, I remember that Right, there were a bunch of people who left to go to different opportunities, 
Um, and I seem to recall the firm coming to the conclusion that um, they needed to find a way they needed to, to hang on to you guys. people on, right? So that's good for you. I mean, they probably paid you really well, good bonuses uh, for a few years during the boom. And then, you know, I, I assume the timing is not coincidental that you went and got your MBA. It seemed like during, um, you know, you left Lehman around November 2001. That was right when everything was crashing, I assume. Yeah, that, that was right around then. Um, I had decided that I wanted to do an MBA already. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think, you know, I, I don't know if that was a particularly good time or particularly bad time to do an MBA. Probably not a good um, time to do a one-year MBA. <laughs> probably not. That's probably right. Probably not a good time to do a one-year MBA. Um, because, yeah, you, you came out in, in not the best time economically at that point so tell me about what that was like because i think there's a lot of parallels to today so kids going getting their thinking of still getting their mba starting in this this fall what would you uh, or kids going into their second year potentially who now don't have the decision to defer or anything like that they just have to keep going um what was it like coming out of uh INSEAD? and you're already in, you're already in paris did you know you wanted to come stateside um after or what was the decision or to to do the publishing business yeah, so um, I, after my MBA, I was not sure exactly what it is that I wanted to to do. Um, I so yeah, I, let me let me back up there. Like, yeah. you had a great job at Lehman theoretically, right? You're getting paid well. Is it? Were you thinking maybe I'll be a banker for life, <laughs> and then just it, it's just the hours were too grueling, and you thought maybe I just need to reset, step back a little bit, and kind of just get better perspective. What was the thought process going into the MBA? Yeah, I've, I've had, I think, an, an interesting path. I've, I've always been within this, this industry, with the exception of those two years doing a magazine, mm-hmm. um, which, I'm, which I'm, of course, happy to, to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I probably learned um, pretty soon that I didn't really enjoy being a deal person. Um, I really liked the industry. I really liked finance. Mm-hmm. Um, but deals, I think they're, they're exciting for, for a lot of people. Um, but there's also a lot of, you know, especially in types of investment banking deals where you're doing the same type of process again and again and again. Um, and that can be if you're doing IPOs, right? You're doing similar work each time that you're taking a company public. Um, and so you're doing IPOs for the full three years plus you were there? Pretty much. Pretty yeah. Much, yeah. Um, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, and there, there, there are other, right? I, I wanted different types of challenges. Uh, I had actually thought when I was an undergrad, I had thought of going for a PhD at at that time. And one of my professors talked me out of it. Um, I I remember he said then that you can make a lot more money practicing finance than than getting a PhD in economics, which was probably correct. or uh, yeah, it, it it was correct, but it's correct. It, it's probably still is correct today. But okay, it, yeah. it, pro- it probably still is correct today. It doesn't um, mean you're fulfilled, however. I th- I think that's right, and I I I had a desire to to do something else, to to try something else. So um, I could have come back into investment banking after I finished my my. Did, my did you have an offer from? Um, come back. I I did. I mean, I was speaking with firms. I burned reaching out to me too, and I I could have. Yeah, um, but I decided at that point that, that wasn't something that I wanted to to, to do. So how did you come across this? You know, how did you say I'm going to start up my own thing? Yeah, so uh, we started while in business school. Um, uh, a couple of friends of mine and my my wife we did an entrepreneurship course um, there, 
And we started a magazine. It was a women's romance fiction magazine. That was what, what, what we had the idea for. So very different than banking. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was an, an interesting business. We entered it into a business plan competition at INSEAD. We didn't win, um, but one of the judges came up to us after and said, this is really interesting. I'd love to get involved with you guys if you're, if you're interested in doing this. So we took it, we ran it for a couple of years. Was um, there some funding involved with that? Yeah, we- uh, we the angel round or whatever. Yeah, we uh, raised some money for that. Yep. Um, we were doing actually pretty well. We were um, nationally circulated. We were, I think I remember we were on the verge of going into like Walmart and- Wow, you know, this, we, is the US. We, this is the US? Yeah, this is the US. Yep. I mean, we, we were in all of the major bookstores, but we were on the verge of going more mass market than that. Yep. Um, but funding was difficult. I mean, even then, um, you know, online was really becoming much stronger than, than print magazines and how yeah. to monetize that was, was, was a little bit difficult. Um, so that got me more, more interested in fundraising, which is actually one thing that I tried for a little bit when I came into to private equity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that that was an, an interesting experience. I think having the entrepreneurial experience was was great. Um, when I ended up coming back into investment banking after that, mm -hmm. um, that was I think something that was useful in dealing with entrepreneurs and business owners. Having had Tell that, me, I mean, you were coming back, and the, the economy had started kind of picking up when you got your job back at uh, Lazard, right? Uh, yeah, well, it's what's now Lazard Middle Market. Middle market, right? So yeah. you. But you had Lehman on your resume, super strong shop, and you, but you still did this kind of entrepreneurial thing. For, for listeners thinking they want to go do their own thing, was it tough to kind of tell that story coming back like, and make them believe that you were ready to kind of grind away again? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it, was, it was certainly not something that most people do, right? Like, yeah, I, I'm just saying like in the interviews, were they pushing you hard on that stuff? If you remember, I know it was a long time ago. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I think people did, right? I, I think that that was a question of, you know, you were in banking and you, right, you, you were in banking, you were doing well, presumably, you, right, why do you want to, right, why were you doing that? Why do you want to come back? Um, I think that was right. Um, it probably would have been an, an easier path, right? Uh, there would have been, right, uh, the, the path of least resistance would have been to stay in banking throughout. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, I mean, I, I don't know how, how easy it is now for someone at a junior level to go out and come back in. Um, but it is something that I was was able to do. And I really liked it when I, I, I liked the firm that I came back to, but worked well. So tell me, you were there for a couple of years. And then how did this, uh, how did the Riverside come come along? Was it something like you were you were looking? Tell me about how you thought about the next role you wanted to have, because it sounded like the second time banking, you're like, okay, this is really it. I'm, I'm out. I'm going to find something long term. Or what was the thought process where you know you were an associate again? So was it? Um, it's a really tough job. So IB associate, you're having to manage the analysts. Luckily, mm -hmm. you had done it before, so you probably had more respect from the analysts. And then up above, you're still like managing up a lot, right? So you're getting really basically attacked from both sides. <laughs> So tell me about like just surviving those next couple of years. And then what, what were you thinking in terms of like your career? What were you, you were saying, okay, I'm not really a deal guy. So what did you think of next? How did you, what was your thought process around that? Or is it just whatever you, you could find that you felt was like going to be the best career track? 
Yeah, I mean, so 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 first thing is the 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 firm that I went to um, afterwards, the the investment bank that I went to, um, I, I really enjoyed, I and mean, there were there were the people there were were great people, um, both the people who were above me and the analysts who were below me. Um, I, I really enjoyed working with them. Um, I though, you know, as you said, I wanted to try something different than than doing deals. I had become interested in fundraising because of the magazine experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, um, Riverside, as I remember, it was starting to, to think about fundraising, was starting to, to think about, you know, having a professional fundraising team in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though, you, you know, you could think about my, my, my resume and say, well, would you look at my resume and say that this is a sales guy um, who you're going to have join and do fundraising? Um, but I think back then, uh, how, how many people really were there who were doing that? I think the, the yeah. right the, the the job of in-house fund placement was smaller, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the headhunters that they were working with thought, you know, I know this guy Avi. I think I, I knew him from when I was looking at coming back into investment banking. Yeah, um, and he made the connection. I think he'd be really good at this because. You know, he really understands the weeds of the deals, the numbers, what's going on, can communicate that with LPs, uh, but also is a, I guess, a reasonably outgoing guy, someone who we could see sitting on the road isn't going to embarrass us. Uh, so I ended up doing that. Um, and then I ended up staying uh, there at Riverside for about 10 years. Yeah, so long run there. I mean, you had you wore several hats though, right? So you initially were in that kind of fundraising investor relations role. Um, did you... Can you talk about a little bit to the listeners, like the the progression of someone like that? Because it's different than the than the deal professional or investment professional there, right? Yeah, like and the day to day, what that's like there as as investor relations. Like, are you on calls all day? Or are you on the road all the time? What was it like? Yeah, it was it was both both of those calls and 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 on the road. Um, and I think both, most of what I've done in my career, other than being an investment banking associate, um, ha- had been something that there just wasn't a very established career path uh, before I came in and started doing it. Uh, so um, at, at that point, um, there were a lot of phone calls to LPs, as you're talking about, um, a lot of traveling, going to meet current LPs, going to meet prospective LPs, uh, a lot of figuring out strategy, a lot of working with the management of the firm, with the senior management of the firm, with the different investment teams, the different products, um, figuring out right strategy for for fundraising. It, it is like you're saying, it's it's very different than a deal role. In a deal role, you're spending a lot of your time um, on the the LBO models when you're at the, the more junior levels. You're right. spending time getting into the companies. Um, so you you could think of you know, the people who are doing deals, they're, you know, more into the companies, the people who are doing fundraising are more into the investors. Uh, one of the other things that I used to joke about is that the fundraising team had much better travel than the deal teams did. Because, you know, I think when you, yeah, because when you think about where, 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 where mid-market companies are versus where large institutional investors tend to be, you know, if you like being in large, exciting cities, right, the fundraising can be, can be a place to do that. It's interesting. And so tell me how you felt. I mean, was it true that the technical aspect of your previous role actually helped? Or was it more like you had a lot more to learn on sales? And or, or was, it probably helped you, I guess, with dealing with the actual senior management at the at, at Riverside. But was it 
how do I, my question really is just the challenges of it, like coming up through, because you are kind of carving out your own role there and like being able to deliver that value. Did you find like there was just so much to do and the fun was big and the, the funds were big enough that there wasn't any fear? Like, are you were able to immediately add value because there was just so much to do and so much strategy to speak of? Or was it like you had to find out what to do? Um, I think there, like there is your way. Like that first year, was it scary because they were just like, throw you, give you an office. And then like, you had to figure out what to do. Or was there a lot of like immediate um, kind of taking you and bringing you into with the senior leadership to like strategize? Yeah, I mean, scary, scary, but also fun. There, there was back then. I was still pretty junior, so there was someone um, within fundraising who was above me in, in that. Um, but still, there was a lot of um, figuring out. I think that was a time in general in the industry where um, people were firms were 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 moving from more deal partners doing all of the fundraising towards having people outside doing the or having in-house people who are full-time fundraisers. Um, And I think also to your question about technical skills, I I think that over over time, over an extended period of time, there's been a bit of an evolution in that role. I think that there um, was a time when that role was really more salesy and it was someone who could sell anything, someone who could sell cars, could sell private equity funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, you had people who would come from, from backgrounds that weren't necessarily finance, but were more, more, more salesy. Um, I perceive that now, uh, LPs tend to have, you know, some pretty sophisticated questions some pretty sophisticated needs. So they want to know that if they're speaking with someone in a fundraising in an IR group, you know, they're going to know that you might not be able to get into the weeds of a specific transaction to the same degree that someone who did that deal would. Mm-hmm. But they also want to know that they can talk with you about more complex topics regarding a fund can you or, give any or investment. Like, You'll be like, able to okay, do what, why'd you guys do this dividend recap here or something like something along that? And you're not going to be like deer in headlights. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, yeah. so, so, so they're going to ask you, why did you do this, this dividend recap here? Ideally, you'll, you'll have an answer for them, right? Ideally, you'll just be able to explain where it is. But as you're saying, at a minimum, you're not going to look like a deer in headlights and say, what's a dividend recap, <laughs> right? At that point, they're going to say, okay, I need a different contact here within the firm. Makes sense. Right. And, and also to the extent that you can get in, that you can get deeper into the weeds, that you can have more substantive conversation, mm-hmm. um, the more value you can add. That's fair. So tell me a little bit about, you know, you, you're there for a long time and, you know, your, your titles were changing as you got more senior. Um, you even went to Belgium. Tell me a little bit about that. Why, why go abroad? And what yeah. was the opportunity presented to you as and why go? Yeah, so so that started originally. Um, they have a, a, a European business, a, a good Euro- European business, mm-hmm. um, and also at the time, you know, we're we're looking to grow that out further, uh, to grow out the business, grow out the investor base in Europe. Yeah. Um, so we needed to have someone there, um, and I guess having um, you know ha- having spent a lot of time in uh, Israel and having spent some time in France, that made me almost European, <laughs> I guess. You were the guy, um, you were the guy. <laughs> I was the guy, yeah. So um, so I ended up going there for, for that. Um, and then I ended up um, doing um, fundraising investor relations for them in Europe also. Um, and then eventually that transitioned to the chief operating officer role in Europe, which um, is still involved 
involved with with fundraising, right? So that was still, even when I did that, fundraising and IR was still a meaningful part of what it was that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's more because you're also, you know, much more involved in managing the organization. And how many people were there were there when you were at, at its largest when you were CEO there? I want to say, um, and don't hold me to this, but I want to say maybe about forty. Forty is so pretty good size. Yeah. There. And yeah. so, what about half of those are investment professionals, and half are like accounting, admin staff, that type of stuff? Yeah, something like that. And 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 Europe. Um, you know, Europe can be particularly interesting, right? For for um, they're a pan-European fund, yeah. Um, and because of that, a lot of what happens is is cross-border, mm-hmm. um, and that means that you know, if you're if you're a company in New York buying a company in California, that's a lot less complex than if you're a company in Belgium buying a company in in Italy. So you you need more more back office support in an environment like that. I can imagine, probably extremely complex. I work. At, I worked at Rothschild, and they did a lot of cross-border M and A um, as well in Europe. So I saw a little bit of taste of that one when I was training in London. But I said, "Wow, I'm glad I'm not doing that." Yeah. Um, anyways, tell me about uh, your progression. Like, when when was the time? When did you feel like it was time to move on? Was it something where you were recruited out of Riverside, or it was something where you were looking for a new challenge? Yeah, so um, I started going for my PhD while I was at Riverside. Um, in Europe? And, uh, well, I actually, I did it in the, in the States. I had some, some rough commuting for, for a period of time. Um, but they were very supportive. Um, I mean, they, they, they were, I, honestly, I can't say good enough things about the firm. Um, they were very supportive. I had a great relationship with them. Um, they understood what it is that I wanted to, to do. So they allowed me to to, to do that. It's just and, crazy to me that so late in your career, you decided, hey, I'm going to go get a PhD on top of running an entire office. Yeah, it's it's weird, right? Tell me a little <laughs> bit about just like the intellectual curiosity that you you had in order to, and just the time, the hours that you were giving to to being in the office, but also that the hours, um, just the hours you were giving to, um, just a PhD. Like, what was what was your typical week looking like when you were in the midst of trying to write your thesis? And oh, the time was was incredible. And did um, you have a family at that point too? I did, um, and my youngest daughter was born. I think soon after I started the PhD. I have two two daughters. One's <laughs> one's eleven. One six. Um, the 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 time was 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 rough. I mean. Riverside again, as I said, was 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 very understanding, but still, that is a a full time job plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was probably putting in another thirty hours a week on the PhD. So I, I was it, it was like back to analyst times. Um, you know, as 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 much as I said that that doing deals wasn't really what I wanted to 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 do. That that hard work, that work ethic, has never bothered me. Um, in fact, my wife told a boss of mine at some point that I get bored if I'm not busy. I said, you know, I don't know if you should really say that, but um, that is something that I've, I've always had. So it, it meant that I was working hard during the week. Um, I tend to be a morning person. So before I'd go to the office, I'd get in typically a couple hours on the PhD. I was traveling back and forth. The weekends meant that I was doing a lot of work because if I was doing work, work during the week, then I'd be doing PhD work on the weekend. So it was. How did um, your wife uh, approve of all this? 
<laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I have three young kids. If I was working uh, 70, even 70 hours, I'd be getting a lot an earful. She was she 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 was very good about it, um, but I, it 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 was a lot of work. I mean, I, I would say, and I've had this conversation with other people. If people want to think about doing what I did, it can be a very fulfilling opportunity. Um, you know, someone who wrote me a recommendation when I first applied um, gave me some good advice, which is that. Uh, if you want to do a PhD at this point, you have to know for certain that this is something that you want to do. And this is something that you have to do because you really want it. It can't be something that you're doing just because you think it's a professionally good thing to do, mm -hmm. because there will come a time, you know, not that far away when you realize how many hours you're putting into it. And you're going to have to be comfortable with that. And uh, that that turned out to definitely drive. I found it to be one of the most fulfilling experiences that I've ever had, but it was absolutely a ton of work. Tell me why. Tell me like what what about it? It's just you're an intellectually curious person, it seems, <laughs> in general. So you did you have this question kind of already formed in terms of something you wanted to go after and look at? Um, it was obviously related to private equity, correct? You want to give a, just a brief kind of uh, synopsis of your of your thesis and what you? Yeah. So I. I started out uh, at the beginning, the, one of the reasons that I wanted to do it is that I was intellectually curious. Another reason that I wanted to do it was because I was, there, there were questions that would come up when you're involved with running an organization um, or when you're involved in investing in private equity that people will try to figure out answers to. And I, I just figured there, there has to be research work on this. There, there must be academics or consultants who have looked at this. And, you know, they, and, and they had not. <laughs> well, in some things, right, in a lot of things they had not. I mean, and some things they had. Um, and uh, there's a lot of great academic work that goes on that doesn't find its way into practice um, for interesting reasons. And also a lot of really important questions that practitioners have that don't find their way into, into research. Um, so the, the original topic um, that I wanted to look at, which ended up not being my topic, I was interested in cross-border M&A. This goes back to what we were oh. talking about, talking about uh, right before. Yeah. Um, and I was very interested in the idea of the effect of culture on cross-border M&A. I, I had a sense that when you had two companies that were cultural, uh, this is going to sound obvious, but, you know, I think this is, again, a topic where how much of people research it, um, that when, when one company buys another and they're culturally very similar, maybe they're from the same country or the same region or mm -hmm. have other aspects of their culture that are similar, um, the M&A tends to be much more successful than if you have two companies that are very different in their cultures. And I was interested in getting deeper under the hood of why that is and what that means. And if you're a private equity firm and you're looking to do an add-on of a company and you see a great add-on, but it's in a very different culture, um, you know, what can you do to make that work and what might be some predictors of that working or not? So that was my, my initial interest. I ended up um, not, not pursuing that. Um, what I came into, I was uh, one of the first courses that I that I took um, in the PhD 
was this is actually a, a psychology course and an organizational psychology course. And we got into some of the research on highly skewed distributions. So we were looking at, at then it was power law distributions and this idea, right, the 80-20 rule, right, Pareto, the, this idea that a very small percentage of uh, people produce the majority of value, a very small percentage of companies or the vast majority of market cap. Um, and I thought, this is fascinating. I, I've got access to some pretty good private equity data. Let me see if private equity tends to look the same. Um, and I, I looked at the data and I saw, you know, oh my God, this does look very similar. Um, and it turns out that private equity is, 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 is pretty skewed. So then I started looking at, you know, what are, right, what are some of the predictors about performance in private equity and what are some of the things that, that might lead towards, you know, some firms, some companies um, being extreme outperformers, producing lion's share of value. So, what's the answer? No, just kidding. <laughs> was, there, was there an easy answer, or was it uh, was there some any insight that you're you're that you're able to share? Yeah, well, I, I think there there is no one simple answer to that, um, but there are you know the the ideas is really interesting. There was a, a paper that came out. I forget if this was in 2017 or 2018, and if I'm quoting the, the statistic correctly, it was something like between 1917 and 2016, 4% of publicly traded companies created 100% of value on US stock markets. Um, and that doesn't mean that the other 96% all created no value. It just means that within the other 96%, those that made money only made enough to make up for the ones that, that, that lost money. Um, and there are interesting implications. There are questions about, you know, well, why does that happen? But there are also questions, and this gets into, you know, quant, quant research, there are questions about portfolio construction, right? If you know that a portfolio construction uh, uh, about diversification, if you know that a small percentage of companies create the majority of value, right? What does that mean? But isn't that even more, that isn't that even more the case nowadays with tech, be like with Amazon eating everything and Google eating everything? I mean, is there ever a time more where this would it's it feels like it's getting even more and more skewed on that side with the help of tech like it's the inequality just like all the the bigger is just getting so much bigger so much faster maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong but i don't know i mean there's still the walmart there but they're trying to like i mean in 20 years what it's going to what is it going to look like yeah, there, there is an idea that um, I think it was in uh, a couple of, of, of Nassim Taleb's books. Um, oh, sorry, that's my phone. Let me no shut that off. Sorry about that. Um, there, there is an idea, I think this was in one of Nassim Taleb's books, um, that with, with globalization, with the um, increasing ability of companies to scale, um, you see more of that winner-take-all outcome yeah. right right he had the idea i, I remember from uh, again from, from from one of his books his idea that there was a time when you could more easily be a traveling musician in a town and people would come to listen to you but now you're competing with people who are much more talented than you are who are who are you know who, who who have recordings or right who people can travel to to see in larger concert halls yeah. um so I, I think it is true that just as the world is becoming more globalized more technological more scalability um, that 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 effect is getting greater. Yeah, for sure. It'll be really interesting the next ten to twenty years. I think what, what, where we end up. But tell me a little bit. So you you had a, it took you about four years to get that. It's pretty fast working full time. 
um, to get the PhD. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, that that was uh, during that time. That also leads to uh, to, to landmark. Um, in that um, landmark where I am um, doing quant, quant research, they actually they gave me the data for a couple of the studies that I did during the the PhD. You know, one one thing also when you talk about um, you know, when you talk about four years doing the PhD, I think one advantage that I had is that the research that I was doing was very practical um, to the type of work that I did. So I had said that the, the folks at, at Riverside were, were very supportive. Um, I imagine that if I wanted to do a PhD in Sanskrit, they, they wouldn't have been. Um, but, but because it was, it was, it was useful, it, it, it worked out. And then it also led to a great transition because while I was there, um, you know, Landmark gave me data um, for, for a couple of my studies. It, it turns out that the head of quantitative research at Landmark got his PhD at the same school where, where I did, which was an, an, an interesting connection. Mm. Um, and then, you know, after, after that, I was thinking of going into academia, but I called him and said, I'm interested in doing what, what, what you do. And he said, wonderful, why don't you come on board? Awesome. So tell me a little bit about that. So what, why... Why not go into academia? What were you? What was kind of the, the balancing act of like, okay, I can make no money or I can make a little some money? Is that the, basically? Is that a fair? <laughs> is that a fair? Like, I mean, because you had kids at this point, I don't blame you to like, you know, use some of the the knowledge you had gained. And, yeah. and by the way, going to do your PhD, did you have a quant background that you were able to? Or was that all learned during? You had a quant background earlier, um, so because it didn't uh, seem like you know you're not you're an investment banker. You're not doing like statistics. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, so uh, you know, going back to, to undergrad, I did a very quantitative undergrad degree. Um, but you're you're right. I mean, when you're when you're doing investment banking or this type of investment banking, like I was, um, or you're doing buyouts, you're not doing quant in the way that you typically think about quant. Um, I've always been quantitatively minded. Mm -hmm. So also when I went into the PhD, I really dive, dived into that. So it, it, it wasn't like I was a, uh, a math phobe coming into it. I'm someone who's, who's always really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, but, but it was a good, you know, reintroduction, refresher, deepening of that. And you kind of wanted to stay in that realm. You, did, you didn't want to be the fundraising person anymore. You wanted to no. dive deeper, or, or you were willing to do both for Landmark. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's I I really enjoy um, working with 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 investors. Um, you know, I I wanted to um, you know to to follow that intellectual curiosity that that you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, right? Which is a big reason for wanting to do the PhD to answer those those questions. Um, but it 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 really wasn't that I didn't like doing the work with investors. I, I really like those interactions, the hearing what people think, the hearing what people are, yeah, it's are, super are, interesting. are interested and, in. And you're getting, in, you're getting insight into all different types of funds and different, their concerns, the LP's concerns, you're bringing that back. It's, it's probably a very fun exercise. I'm just saying when you're coming out of your PhD and you, you talk to the, you know, head of quant research or whatever at, at Landmark, you did that you specifically targeted that yeah um, because you just serendipitously happened to he happened to go to the same school or what or were you talking to other quant research people at other funds and, and trying to trying to get your way into to a fund like this or a secondaries 
Oh yeah, the, yeah, that's a, there. There is some serendipity or, or luck. I mean, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I definitely didn't go into the PhD saying that I want to end up at at Landmark. Um, I was thinking when I went into the PhD that I. I knew that I wanted to stay that I wanted to stay researching private equity. I wanted to stay researching finance. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to do that by staying in academia, by going to academia, or if I wanted to do something in practice that that relates to that. You know, one of the things that um, led me to decide to do it in practice rather than academia. I mean, you are correct. I think people are paid more in the in the in the investment side than in the academic side, though. Though um, you know, academics who do things like this, I don't think they're paid that badly. Um, sure. But um, but it, you know, you, the compensation is is presumably greater here. Um, but it, it was more that I I wanted to have that academic background. I wanted to have the the quant chops. I wanted to to do the research, but I still wanted to have a meaningful practical impact. And in in academia, oftentimes, at least in in my experience, people are more interested in the theory. They're more interested in where the literature goes, mm-hmm. and they're less immediately interested in the in the practical takeaways you know what a, one of my professors when I was doing the the PhD um, was talking I think this is an interesting you know metaphor or story about this that um, was comparing people who go for their PhD when they're a little bit older more advanced in their career versus people who go for their PhD right out of university mm-hmm. and the idea was that uh, people who go for their PhD right out of university um, spend their first couple of years diving into a stream of literature. So they know everything that there is to know about something in finance or something in strategy or something in management. And then they try to figure out, what do I want to research? And because they haven't had a professional career yet, they don't really know the problems that people in professional careers want to solve. So they go to conferences, they read literature, they try to find somewhere that they can find a gap and then try to fill it. Um, ideally, it'll be useful for people in the practical world, but you know, maybe not. Um, on the flip side, people who come later in their career to do a PhD um, are crazy. Number one, but yeah, go ahead. Well, are, are crazy, yeah. right? So it's that's someone. <laughs> but number two, we're we're chock full of problems, right? Right. Uh, a lot of us came for the PhD because we have mountains of problems that we want people to be able to help us solve. Um, but the problems that we have aren't always academically interesting. Right, so we kind of we kind of go the opposite way. If you're coming right out of undergrad, it's how do you take an academically interesting problem and make it practically useful. Mm-hmm. And if you're coming from from where I was, it's how do you take your mountain of practically useful problems and make them academically interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, it's interesting. You're coming at it at a completely opposite angle. Yeah. So, so tell me. So, when you kind of started. Were you immediately able to apply some of the stuff that you had, the new skills you had learned? Was it, how big was the team, I guess, uh, the quantitative team when you kind of jumped in Landmark? And tell me a little bit about what you're able to share with the listeners in terms of kind of what, what your group does at, at the fund and, and maybe maybe a quick summary again on secondaries and all that. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so quant research at Landmark is today, I think we're about 21 people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that includes, it's either seven or eight analysts, um, all of the analysts, right? So right out of college who um, will ultimately go to private equity or infrastructure, start off in quant research. So can talk about um, what it is that, that, that we do. Um, so, so first, secondaries again. Um, secondaries is 
Uh, in the traditional business, it's buying diversified portfolios of fund interests from LPs. So if you're you know, a large state pension fund and you want to sell, you, know, you, you have a portfolio of real estate fund investments or private equity fund investments that you want to sell, um, a secondaries firm is a great place to, to buy them from you. Um, it's gotten more and more in recent years towards more complex structured transactions. Maybe you're an LP or a GP that has a specific financing need that might not translate perfectly to selling you know, a given portfolio. So a lot of work um, goes around uh, that, that now. Um, secondaries lends itself very well to quant research because you're, you're, you're building big diversified portfolios. A secondaries fund um, might have several thousand companies that are within it, right? It could be anywhere probably from several hundred to several thousand companies, which means you can really start to think about companies like portfolio construction, concepts like portfolio construction, diversification, risk. How do we want to look relative to a benchmark? You can, you can start thinking more about um, manager quality in some more systematic ways. You know, if you're, if you're a primary private equity fund, if you're at the CEO level, at the actual firm level, and or at the, or you're saying, looking at like the average score of the CEOs in a specific portfolio that you're looking at purchasing, or there are other ways of like looking specifically at like, because you're when you're buying interest, you're typically they're not saying you can't cherry pick the ones you want, right? In that portfolio, in that basket, or can you? Um, it it would depend on the on the type of transaction. Yeah. Um, but right, so it 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 can be. Um, but 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 manager quality. The idea of manager quality is, you know, is this is this fund that I'm investing this fund that I'm buying an interest in, mm -hmm. is this probably a, a more skilled private equity manager or is it probably a less skilled private equity? Oh, manager? so you're talking not at the company level. You're talking at the private equity level. At the, at the private equity level. Now, there's work that can be done at the company level also. There are also um, some private equity firms and some venture firms that are doing work at the company level to try to make those, those types of, of predictions as well. Um, I think it's harder um, if you're doing it at that level because if you're a private equity firm and you have maybe 10 or 15 companies in a fund, it can be more difficult um, Right. It, it, it can be more difficult to think about portfolio construction, right? Because any one or two companies goes wrong or goes very right can make your portfolio. But if you have 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 companies in a portfolio, now you can really start to think in terms of probabilities and predictions. And right, right there's uh, less of a chance that one outlier that you didn't expect is going to change things meaningfully for you. That's fair. So do you feel like the work you're doing is leaned on heavily? Um, in all the decisions that are being made? Or like, is it, is it something where the quant is used kind of in conjunction with just whatever the best deals they can? Because obviously there's still the art of negotiation with the LPs and with the, like, obviously you end up getting to, okay, here's the number, right? Here's the number, we're going to buy this, you know, whatever, $500 million interest of, or whatever, $200 million interest. And guess what? Like, it's actually an incredible deal. Like, forget about whether the private equity managers <laughs> could or not. Like, we we get a sense of the underlying value of these assets is closer to three hundred or four. You know, you know what I mean. It's, so, I'd love to hear a little bit about you know how much your your team of twenty or so, or how much the work you're doing is actually like they're leaning on that on a day to day basis, or is it just yeah. Like, yeah, so so all all of that plays into it, and you're 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 hitting on a number of key points. Whenever you're looking at buying, you know, it could be a portfolio of fund interests, it could be an asset in a company, 
um, you're you're thinking about what is it really worth, right? Yeah. Versus versus what the reported nav is. What is it really worth versus versus what I'm paying? You're thinking about you know what's the quality of the manager. You're thinking about what might happen if there's a downside economic environment that we're a little bit familiar with, right? <laughs> that we're a little bit familiar with now. Um, so all of these are are important questions and. All of these are also areas where quant research has something to say, um, where um, we're able to analyze right, patterns in data, we're able to analyze historical trends, we're able to, to help, you know, to help provide guidance, to help provide insight to the deal teams um, using, using some of the, the types of quant tools, the analytics that we have. Is there any standardization that comes in from I assume a lot of the work is just getting the data cleaned and prepped. And how do you even get this data out of the the LPs or the are are the funds directly like or even from the funds? I assume I remember when I was working in private equity, it was just you know preparing something for an LP, and there was and it was like no 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 we got to change this and no no that's not done right or wait the you know is the math done there the funds came out on this day so like how much is there a sense that the data is good? That you're getting or how much work is because <laughs> that's like yeah. a huge <laughs> no that's fine um yeah that is uh, anytime you're doing any type of research gathering the data and the quality of the data um is important that that's actually one of the um advantages of of being in private equity um private equity private real estate infrastructure um being in a firm like this that in public markets data is really easy to come by Mm -hmm. uh, in private markets, there are just fewer people who have access to good data, right? right? You really, right? There's some data that's publicly available. There are data sets that are publicly available. Yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of the good data is really only available to people who have large portfolios of underlying assets. Yeah. Um, and, and that's another advantage. You know, you, you could think about it that, you know, in, in private markets, you can't get access to the wealth of data that a public markets investor can get. But you can get access to to data that you know that is is harder to come by because it's 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 private markets data. Um, it's also important to us when you ask about LPs and GPs. It's important to us um, to also be seen as thought partners to them. So you know, so they want to come to us and they want to ask us questions because. You know, we we provide this help internally to Landmark, but we can also be helpful to LPs and GPs who have questions like this too. And you don't charge for that research. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, I guess for um, let's talk a little bit more about just mm. um, if someone wants to follow in your footsteps, it's it's an it's yeah. a tough path. What would you suggest for kids either in college right now? that are a little more interested in the quantitative side, but they are interested in finance, what should they be developing nowadays? What should they be focused on? Yeah, um, so uh, there, are, there are two, two areas, um, I'd say two, two areas of, of knowledge. Um, you could say that, that people coming out of, of undergrad who wanna go into quant, um, I think should have. One is knowledge of economics or statistics, right? Having, having that kind of background. Um, and the second one is, is coding skills. And also, so not everyone is gonna have that coming in. There are people who are gonna be very successful in quant without having those coming in. Um, but those are two types of skills that you're definitely going to need to develop. 
um, coming into a program. And if you have them coming in, um, that'll be a, a bigger advantage to you um, if you want to go that way. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things that distinguishes um, private market quant, um, I'd say, is that um, we have a variety of skill sets that that we need to have. Someone put it to me once that to be good in private market quant, um, you need to have the quant chops to be able to analyze complicated problems. You also need to have the business sense. You need to be able to understand the private equity industry um, so that you're able to ask and answer questions that are really useful. Um, And then you also need to be able to speak English. Um, in the sense that, right, there are, there are um, a lot of people in academia who, who speak academic um, more than they speak, right, or really understand English. So you need to be able to explain complicated concepts um, in ways that you don't need to have a quantitatively oriented PhD to, to be able to get. But, but again, for, for people coming right out of college, I think those types of skills are useful, and but also coding, that type of interest. There's certain languages, Python maybe, or other languages. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, R, Python, stuff yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, what else would you like to share? Before we call it, I, I, anything else? I, I have your notes here pulled up, but um, yeah, in terms of where people can apply, you know, you said they can send their resume for your analyst program. Yeah, sure. If uh, if, if if people are interested in learning about our our analyst program, if they're uh, in a college that has Handshake, um, you should be able to find us via Handshake. Um, we also have an email address for people who are interested in the analyst program. It's uh, info.web at landmarkpartners.com. Landmark Partners all 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 one word. It's info.web at landmarkpartners.com. Um, so those are, are two ways that people can find out about the analyst program. And I guess I, I would also add if I can that yeah, please. Um, the the analyst program at Landmark um, I think is a is a is an interesting place um, for, for for people to be. Um, for, for people who uh, want to be deal jockeys, who, who already know that they like doing deals, um, secondaries are a really interesting place to do that because you have large and increasingly complex transactions that, that people are doing. Um, for people who are more quant-oriented, there's a lot of really interesting analytics. Um, you have the opportunity to be exposed to different asset classes. Um, and, and people, you know, if I use our, our program as an example, people who come into our program, um, you know, get an opportunity to be exposed to all of that. So they learn about quant, they get to do work with deal teams, they get to do work with investor relations and business development. Um, and, you know, not, not everyone who's an analyst ends up staying on to become an associate and, 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 and move up, but a pretty large percentage of them, um, do, and, it's, it, it can be a great way to learn different parts of the business. And if you do want to explore, you know, whether you're more of a quant, whether you're more of a deal person, whether you're more of a salesperson, um, this is a good environment to, to start to figure that out. Or just do what Avi did. And just, <laughs> <laughs> and just go the whole path. Just, right. You know, I did over you know, 15 years or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> you could do that too. Yeah. No, so yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Do you know what some of the, the, the analysts that have uh, left, you know what they've gone on to do other quant fund, what other quant positions or have, have any of them gone into pure, more pure finance, pure PE 
or um, I believe all of the above. Um, you know, there, there. I believe there, there are people who have gone into Duquant um, in other places. Um, there are people who have gone to venture capital or who have gone to private equity. Um, how, it's how a, do people think of this as like a quant hedge fund versus a this type of quant role in terms of the day to day? How how different is it really? Yeah, from what you know, yeah, yeah, a quant hedge fund. Um, in a strange way, uh, perhaps a quant hedge fund might be even more quanty, um, if they, if that makes sense. In a, in a quant hedge fund, you have you know much larger data sets. Um, I, I'd imagine there are uh, more complicated types of analyses, more complex types of analyses that you can Time do in a, yeah, in a yeah in a in a in a quant hedge fund. Um, in private equity, we have less data, mm -hmm. um, but the advantage is that you're able to do something that's a lot newer, um, and you're able to have a, a a pretty big impact. I mean, it's it's just it's um. It's it's related, but private equity. It's just quant is a newer field here yeah. than it is. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So tell me, like, I guess before we call it, looking back on your career, is there anything you would kind of give advice you'd give to your younger self, knowing all the the long work and long hours you put in, or would you would you change a lot, or would you change a little, or and what any specific advice you have for the younger listeners? Yeah. Well, I I found for. For me personally, um, I found that um, taking the path to find what I really wanted to do was was very useful because um, each each step along that path, I got closer and closer to what it is that I really wanted to be doing. Um, I was very lucky, thinking that I had some very supportive firms, some very supportive bosses. Um, and I don't know that that's always the case for, for, for everyone. Um, but for me, I, I had a very interesting path. Um, I'd also say I, I perceive that there are some people who like to have more of a defined path where they know, you know, every step of the way I start as an analyst, then what do I need to do to hit associate? What do I need to do to hit VP? What do I need to do right to, to move up the ranks? Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll, <laughs> a lot of well, I'll tell you on invest and uh, on Wall Street Oasis specifically. There's a lot of people saying, "Okay, so I'm going to go invest in banking for two years, private equity for two years, business school, back to private equity." Then they say, "Then what?" <laughs> You're like, "Well, you found a partner, or you move downstream, or whatever you have to do to try and you know reach the promised land." Um, and so it's funny because there's people realize there's a, hopefully through this podcast and through the hundred plus, you know, people I've spoken with, people realize there's a lot of different paths to success <laughs> in a whole different range and spectrum of hybrid roles and interesting, you know, sub finance industries you didn't even know existed. Um, so hopefully people are kind of this, this opens their eyes more. Um, I think, yeah. I, I, I think that's right. And I've, I've always been someone who's been interested in, um, finding something something new, right? Whether it be, you know, doing fundraising then, or whether it be, you know, the the COO role then, or whether it be quant, quant research. Not that I was the the first person to do these things, right? Other people have done them, but it was still pretty new, um, yeah. and there wasn't the same defined path, right, that you get if you're doing just traditional deal work throughout. For sure, it's a fascinating path. Thank you. Yeah, I think any, so. <laughs> anything else you want to share? Just try to find your any any guidance in terms of how to find that without kind of derailing your career. I mean, you did magazine publishing for a couple of years and still made it back. 
should people be afraid of that, that taking that risk? You know, I wish I had a good answer for maybe, that. Because maybe now they should be afraid of it because it's a little more, you know, with the recession and maybe it'll be harder to get back in. Yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, I, I wish I had a good answer for that. I'm, I'm happy that I've done everything that I've done um, and, and very happy that I've ended up, um, that I've ended up where I am. You know, I, I don't know if, if someone were to come to me and say, I've been doing a couple of years in, in investment banking or private equity, mm-hmm. and I want to leave now to, uh, you know, do something entrepreneurial for a bit and to come back. Um, I honestly don't know. I, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing other people's thoughts on that. Who are, who are I think it depends. It depends. I would say it depends on the idea. Why don't you get something else and build it on the side? And see if you can get some traction first, like I did. Yeah, because I'm well, honest, because that's what I did. <laughs> and, and and also, I, I would imagine that it depends on 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 what you do, right? Like yeah. um, uh, thinking of 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 quant specifically. If you were to go and do something that was very quantitative, if you were to leave to go for a PhD, or if you were to leave to mm-hmm. do something that was very quanty, and then you wanted to come into quant, I think that would be a lot easier. Um, then, you know, if you were doing quant for a couple of years, then decided to start a magazine and then wanted to come back, that might be a bit more of a challenge. Any thoughts on any of those educational, uh, like certifications, anything that tends to help or you have to get a PhD or I know there's, a, there's one of these sites, QuantNet or something. Is there any of those that, uh, the certifications that you'd recommend or, or do you feel like they're? Yeah, I, I don't think you need a PhD. Um, uh, a lot of the senior people who do this, and actually most, maybe all the senior people that I know who do this, um, do have PhDs. Um, but there are good, you know, uh, there are masters in um, in financial mathematics, right? There are masters in financial engineering, mm-hmm. which I think for this type of role um, are are probably very useful. Also, um, we we also have people who come in straight out straight out of of, of undergrad, right? We have a we have a, a few people coming straight out of undergrad, learn while they're in the analyst program that they really like doing quant, um, have a knack for it, get 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 good at it. Right and don't have a PhD coming into it. I suspect that that's something that in the coming years, if you know, if as private markets quant becomes something that's more established, mm-hmm. you might start to see that go. But I don't think you need to have a PhD for that right now. Um, you need an, an interest in it, and you probably do need to be prepared at some point during your career, right, to cap off the formal training that you have. That's fair. Okay, Lobby. Well, Thanks so much for taking this almost hour, I think, uh, to, to chat with us and to share your interesting path and, and all your advice. Thank you so much. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.